Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the questions, what is the point of my wealth, and what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? Your host, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, director of private wealth design at Monument, will tap into their over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management to help you answer these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram at Monument Wealth and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Welcome, everyone, to the Off the Wall podcast. I'm Jessica Gibbs. And I'm Dave Armstrong. And we are really excited to have Dean Catino on as a guest of our podcast today. Nice to be here, guys. Dean, we're excited to have you. I mean, we never talked to you. So this is a really exciting time for us to catch up. And Am I the second or the third person? <laughs> I forget. You're the second guest. Okay. In quotes. But yeah, really excited to, to do this. So for those of you who don't know, that was entirely sarcastic. Dean is one of the co-founders of Monument along with Dave. And obviously we talk all the time. But one of the things that Dean is well known for at Monument, among many things, is being quite the reader. Dean reads a lot of books and in turn is always bringing really interesting pieces of knowledge to us on the team. And so we invited Dean on today to talk about, I think, one of the books that Dean, I hear you reference back to probably more often than any other book you've read. And this book is called Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. And it's by Annie Duke. It's a great book, Jessica. I think all three of us have read it. I read it about eight months ago, but it was one of those books that had, for me, and I think for many, a really good impact. Because if you just even think about the title, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts, I mean, that really describes what this book is about. And would anyone want to try to make better decisions in life? I think the answer is, yeah. But how do you do that? And what's a good methodology for doing that, et cetera, et cetera. So tell us about who is Annie Duke and what this book is about. She's a really interesting person. Very, very intelligent. She grew up in New England, kind of came from a gaming family. She talks about it in like the first chapter of her book that as a family, they like to play a lot of games. So they were always very competitive with games, very highly educated, went to Columbia, degree in psychology, went to UPenn, did her doctoral work in cognitive psychology as well. So really good background. And kind of the interesting thing about her, she says when she was around 26, she ended up moving out to Montana, getting married, and she hadn't quite finished her doctoral work yet, but she was really in need of money. And her brother, believe it or not, was a world champion poker player. And he suggested to her, why don't you play some poker? You're a pretty good gamer. You could probably make some money. Fast forward 20 years later, she became obviously a very, very successful poker player, won the world championship of poker. And the cool thing about this, because this book is really not a it's not a poker playing book. There are other books. In fact, she's written 14 books. Some of them are about poker. But this book is about making decisions. And what I learned is that not for me or any of us here, but for professional poker players, it takes them about two minutes to play a hand of poker. Wow. Yeah. So 
they're playing a lot of hands per hour, obviously, and there's about 20 decisions that a poker player needs to make per hand. So if you do the math on that, it's a lot of decisions. And every one of those decisions has money as the outcome. Did you win money or lose money? You're a poker player and you're not playing for nickels and dimes and for fun. You're playing for money. So having a really good decision process for poker turns out to be a really good laboratory for kind of looking at how people in general make decisions. It's interesting because when you tie money to it, there is data involved. Oh, yeah. It's objective. So your decisions can actually be analyzed. Your decisions can actually be graded, if you will. Dave, you're absolutely right. And the thing is, when you have something on the line, money, it isn't like, oh, I lost that one. I'll win next time. I mean, these guys, when they're professional poker players, are playing for a lot of money. And actually, over her career, I think she won over $4 million in her career, which is actually pretty substantial for a poker player. That sounds nice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it sounds really good. So here's kind of what I got out of the book. Or actually, there's several things that I got out of the book. But one of the things that she talks about is in life, we always have decisions to make. And obviously, you can try to vet your decision and make the best decision you can. But there are good decisions and bad outcomes. So she talks a lot about this in the book. And that's one thing that as humans, everyone wants to make good decisions and they don't like negative outcomes at all. I mean, people feel pain twice as much as they feel reward. So people always want to make good decisions, but sometimes they blind themselves without looking at the downside. She makes a big point about this, that in life and in almost every single decision, there is a downside and you need to consider that strongly when you vet that decision and make your final outcome. She goes into a lot of detail about no decisions are absolute, et cetera, et cetera. Decisions are very rarely black and white. And a lot of people tend to think of decisions sort of in the game set of chess versus poker. So do you guys play chess? You guys have played chess before. Extremely poorly. <laughs> okay. Same. <laughs> but in chess, if you have played it before, there's no randomness. There's no like, well, I hope a seven of diamonds comes up on the next card flip. Everything known about the game is visible and on the game. All the moves are on the game. But it is a game, and it's a game of skill. And people tend to think of their decision-making, oh, I'm skillful at making decisions. And that may or may not be true. In most cases, it's not. But in poker, there is an element of chance. Some people call it luck, but it's really probability. There's 52 cards in a deck. You can do the math very quickly. One over 52 is about 2%, a little less than 2%. It's like 1.9% if you do the math exactly. So there's about, if I had a deck of cards and I wanted to try to pick the ace of spades, I've got a 2% chance of doing that. So the question is, are you going to wager a lot on that bet? The answer is no. I recall an interview that I watched or read where the winner of the Nobel Prize for Economics, Robert Schiller, who most people will remember his name, the interviewer asked him, said, if you could know anything about investing that we don't know already, what would it be? And his answer was, I would like to know the answer to what does the exact role of luck play in successful outcomes? I remember that it was a really interesting way of putting it. When we talked, when 
you're talking about making good decisions and how there's always the element of risk, because that's really what we're talking about in probabilities. If you make a good decision that's got an 80% chance of making money and you end up on the side of the 20% that doesn't make money, does that mean that you don't have any skill? Does that mean you're dumb? It doesn't. It just means that you experience the reality of risk. As I kind of thought about doing this podcast with you guys, I kind of kept going back to one story. Could you have time for a real quick story? It's actually kind of funny. So I'm a freshman in high school. I'm with my freshman guy friends. We're in the basement of, it's John Miskell's basement. And we're playing cards like for the first time and betting money for the first time. And we started playing a bunch of different games and it's a lot of fun. Anyway, we started playing this game called AC Ducey. Basically, it's a game that you put two cards down and your bet is the next card that gets flipped up. Is it going to land in between those two cards? Yes or no? Okay. So the best odds is if you're dealt a two and an ace being the high card in the deck, that's your best odds right there. That's a great play to make. So here's the story. So there's like $25 in this pot, which by the way, for a freshman in high school in the mid 1970s, that's a lot of money. You you could argue (laughs) it's a lot of money today. So it's $25 in this pot. And there had already been, I think, three aces played. Okay, that means there's only one left. I think there were only a couple of twos that were left in the deck. And John Miskell gets dealt an ace. Great, there's no more aces to be played. And he gets dealt a two. The best odds. And there was only one two remaining in the deck that hadn't been played yet. So he made a decision. I think the very best decision was he bet the entire pot. And you guys know what happened, right? The two comes up and he loses. So the room erupts. Mr. Miskell comes downstairs. What's going on in my basement? Anyway, the end of the story is that everyone got their money back. We were all thrown out of the basement and the game's over. But here's the point. Here's the point of the story. Did John Miskell make the right bet? And by the way, it was a 98% chance of being successful. And Dave, this goes to what you were talking about. Did he make the right bet? Absolutely. Would he make it again? I would make it again in a heartbeat because the probabilities are so with you. But what happened? He had a bad outcome. And so there's a difference between making a really great sound decision and having a bad outcome. I mean, you have to recognize that in life and as we get dealt cards in life, you can have bad outcomes. I mean, Dave, we see it and Jessica, we see it all the time where we're investors. We invest in portfolios. We manage them to the best we can. We are not always successful with the investments we pick. I mean, over the long run, we yes, but any individual stock that we buy, of course we want it to go up. But there are times when it just doesn't work out that way. Does it make it a bad investment? And the answer is no, as long as you have a defined process, which Monument has a very defined process in all of their models, et cetera. But even with the very best process, there is no perfect decision, high probability decisions, but no perfect decision. And that's the point of the story. Summarizing what you were saying is basically... What determines how our lives turn out is basically luck and the quality of our decisions. So I think we can all agree that we can't control luck as much as we wish we could, but we can control the quality of our decisions. So Dean, I know Andy Duke spends a lot of time in the book talking about how to improve your decision-making behavior. 
What are some of the ideas she has around that? The number one thing that we just mentioned is you have to recognize that you're not always going to be right all the time. That's a given in, in so many decisions. There are varying magnitudes of decision-making. What am I going to have for dinner tonight? Well, I'm either going to have the steak or I'm going to have the salmon. You may say, well, what's the more healthier option? Probably salmon's probably more healthy if you don't have a lot of cream sauce on it, which I would do, but you want to make a good decision there. So that's a one-day decision. But then there are other decisions that have a much greater magnitude. For example, can I retire in the next 10 years? Okay, that's a pretty significant decision. And as we build out scenarios, when we start doing financial planning for people, we take into account a lot of data when we actually try to answer that question for the client. What's the rate of return? What's inflation going to be? How much risk are you comfortable with? What is your lifestyle going to be in retirement? How long are you theoretically going to live? All of these inputs go in it and many, many others. So to answer your question, you need to have a very good process. If you have a very good process and you recognize in your process that there is going to be downside probabilities, and hopefully they're on the lower side, if you pre-recognize downside, you have a much greater chance of making a better decision and being ready for a potential negative outcome along a long-term timeline, which retirement typically is a long-term timeline. So you can kind of self-correct. It's all about, as she goes in the book and talks about, if new information is available to you, you have to always bring that into the equation because it makes for a better vetted decision. I would even argue a little bit or, or modify and say the decision to retire it is more about trying to succeed. So when somebody wants to retire, they want to have a high probability of success of succeeding in retirement. And succeeding in retirement can sound or look like a lot of different things, but very simply, it's, will I be able to sustain my lifestyle and not lose the race between dying and becoming destitute? That's just a very simple parameter of success in retirement. But in order to retire and achieve that success, an investor is going to have to take on some risk. So it's the decision-making on the risk that's so critical because anything worth pursuing is going to have less than 100% odds of success. It's just, otherwise, why is it worth pursuing? So risk is just what happens when you end up on the unfortunate side of that equation. It's back to that 80-20 thing that I was saying. And so the decision-making is critical in terms of lowering the chances of experiencing that risk Although, Dean, what you just said was it's impossible to completely eliminate that risk. And what I was just saying was because anything worth pursuing has less than 100% chance of success, otherwise it wouldn't be worth pursuing. So it's also about making sure that when you do end up on the wrong side of the equation of luck, because luck, as you said, plays into it. So because you can end up on the wrong side of that risk equation – you also want to ensure that when you do, because you invariably will, that it does not have a catastrophic impact on your desire to succeed in retiring. So those two things kind of add together, I think. They mesh because I think the line between being bold in taking risk-taking and being foolish in taking risk-taking, crossing that line is like a millimeter thick. It's just very easy to cross that line. 
another way to say it is like risk and luck are sort of what's that term when two people look like doppelgangers. <laughs> the risk and luck are like doppelgangers. It's really hard to tell them apart. So it's critically important to have that decision making process. Kind of what we do at Monument from that standpoint, Dave and Jessica, I know you guys both know this, but in our financial planning software, we actually account for all those variables. And we actually run something, it's wording kind of connected to Las Vegas. It's called Monte Carlo analysis, which is really all about probabilities over a thousand iterations, in other words, a thousand lifetimes. So to Dave, to get to your point, and kind of what I was driving at as well, is that when we vet major decisions, not a decision on what I'm going to have for dinner tonight, but significant decisions where, you know what, I really can't afford to be wrong on this. And I want to minimize the downside as much as possible, but recognizing that there is a downside. When we run these analyses based on scenarios for our clients in, in financial planning, we want to have in the high 70 percentile of probability of success. And again, you go, wow, well, that doesn't sound that good. 75, 78%. I want to be 100%. So here's the one guy that's got 100% of, there's probably several guys, but there's a few people that come to mind that have a 100% percentile of success. Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, everyone that's a multi-billionaire, they're just not going to run out of money. I mean, the probability of that is absolutely probably zero, but there's not many of those people out there. Most folks you know, have limited resources, and that's one of the inputs that Andy Duke talks about in decision-making. So what are your resources? If they're unlimited, well then, today, to your point, who cares? You can make any decision you want to. But that's not the case for the majority of people. There's limited resources. So again, it's about having a process, vetting that process, adding new information to the process. And again, if, if I kind of take it back to Monument, which I, as I read this book, I thought about what we do at Monument. This is why we are reviewing minimum, on a minimum basis with our clients, their financial plan. Are you on track? Because here's the one thing we all know. We may plan for a, 7% rate of return for a client over a long, long period of time. The market may not return 7% next year. It may be something much less than that. It could be negative. Well, what is that going to do to the longevity of that plan? Well, we want to recognize it, number one, it's not what we plan for. But over the long run, our analysis would still be probably very valid because we know that there's a sequence of returns. The timeline is such that we have many, many years before we kind of need to be where we need to be. There's time to self-correct, et cetera, et cetera. These are the inputs that go in. You were referring to that before as when new information becomes available. Because Absolutely. a return like that, that's new information. It's not pleasant, but it's new information. It makes you reevaluate your probabilities and maybe make course corrections and things like that. And that's a never-ending process. That's just always going. I like the way that Duke framed it is when you're trying to make a decision, imagine someone asking you, Want to bet an amount of money? Want to bet on that? And that just forces you to start thinking about what is my rate of certainty or rate of confidence that I'm going to have a positive outcome? How might I be wrong? And I think that's just an interesting way to approach how to improve your decision making is to challenge yourself to not just assume, oh, I know all the information or yeah, yeah, I've always believed this and therefore it definitely has to be true. Let me add to that, Jessica, I'm glad you brought that up. So Annie Duke talks about 
How do we make decisions? What are our decisions based on? Everyone makes decisions all day long. And they're based on our beliefs, what we believe to be true. And that's kind of how human beings have formed their cognitive thinking over eons. But she goes into some detail on how people form beliefs. And believe it or not, this is how most people form beliefs. They hear something, a statement, something they believe to be factual. They hear it and they go, oh, kind of sounds reasonable. I believe that. And then sometime later in their mind, they go, I'm going to actually go through and actually vet that decision and make sure it's absolutely true. But later never actually comes. And we are bombarded with so much information. We hear it in the news. We see it on the internet. And we are forming beliefs based on that. Now, a lot of what we hear, a lot of what we read may or may not be true, but we're forming beliefs on it. The way it should work in a perfect world where we had unbelievable amounts of time to research everything would be, we hear something, I'm going to now vet that and do some research on it and then determine for myself whether it's true or not. And then from there, I'll base my further decisions on that. It just doesn't happen. And that's why sometimes folks will actually draw kind of like a false kind of an outcome on a situation. I bought a stock. My friend told me about it. It went up 50%, sold it. I'm a winner. I'm really good at picking stocks. And that probably isn't true because I know that, and Dave and Jessica, you know this as well, individual stocks by themselves, very high degree of risk. Yes, potentially a very high degree of return, but the probability of that actually working out the way you think it's going to work out is very, very low. That's the luck side. You got lucky and you thought you were smart. Two totally different things. It's really interesting how I find myself doing this all the time. I'll hear something on the news or a little blurb and I'm like, I remember that and I kind of think that's true. I just haven't done deep research to really validate some things that we hear. But believe it or not, we're making decisions based on that all the time. And hopefully they're not decisions of a certain magnitude where an outcome would be very catastrophic. Catastrophic. Because part of the trick of dealing with that is if you're taking risk, you're going to experience some failure at some point. The trick to dealing with that failure is to make sure that you're arranging your investment strategy and wealth plan and everything else in a way so that the bad, I'm not even going to say bad investment, that's not the right word, coming out on the wrong side of the equation of taking risk and a missed financial goal here and there. The key to that is making sure that those things don't wipe you out. So you can keep playing until the odds do fall back in your favor, which we know are skewed to the positive if you're an investor, especially if you focus on the benefits of compounding versus swinging for the fences. We know that compounding doesn't really rely on those big home run hits. It relies on hitting singles and doubles, to use a baseball analogy, but just those small compounding effects because attaining merely good returns that are sustained over an uninterrupted period of time, especially during times of chaos and havoc like last year, we know that that will always win because it's playing the odds. So Dave, it's so interesting you brought up the baseball thing because I had another story. It's actually a pretty good one. So back in the mid-70s, I was a New York Met fan. Loved the Mets ever since 69 when they won their first World Series. But there was 
a baseball player. His name was Dave Kingman. He played in the 70s and through the early 80s. They called him King Kong. He was 6'6", and this guy would hit monster home runs. Like, he was a home run hitter, and he led the league in home runs. And so he's actually tied for, like, 14th in most home runs ever in baseball, which is, I think he hit, like, 442 home runs. And here's the stats on him. Every 15 times up at bat, he hits a home run. Okay, and this is over, like, a 12, 13-year career. So he hits a lot of home runs. And guess what he was hired to do? He wasn't hired to hit singles or doubles. He was hired to hit home runs. So what's the downside of trying to hit a home run? And you guys know, Dave, you must know, if you don't hit a home run, what most likely are you going to do? You're going to strike out. In fact, it's black or white almost. Yeah. So here's a guy, he's trying to hit home runs. He was hired to hit home runs, but he struck out a lot. As a matter of fact, I think he's In all of baseball, I think he's like number fourth with the most strikeouts. So he would strike out every four times up at bat. So every fourth time up at bat, he's striking out. It's actually a little bit less than four. I did the math. Every 15 times up, he's hitting a home run. So I don't know if he's in the Hall of Fame or not, but I think he's trying to get into the Hall of Fame. But anyway, to your point, Dave, he did this knowingly. He took these risks knowingly because like, Hey, look, I know I'm going to strike out a lot. I'm okay with that. The management was obviously okay with it as well. He was there to hit home runs. However, I wonder what his average would have been, because he was a talented baseball player, if he had not tried to hit a home run, but just try to get a hit, try to get a single and double. And so I take this back to investing, especially at Monument. Hey, look, every now and then we're going to hit a home run. We're not trying to hit home runs. You know what we're trying to do? We're trying to get on base all the time. We're trying to get singles and doubles. We want to win the game. And so that's what we're trying to do with our investment plans. That's what we're trying to do with our financial planning. So I'm just wondering if Dave Kingman, I don't know if he's listening, (laughs) but I'm wondering what his average would have been because he hit in the low 200s in lifetime average. It would have been better if he was high 200s. And maybe he could have been there if he had just tried to hit more singles and more doubles. Wouldn't have had as many home runs. But then again, he probably would have had a better average. And maybe that was better for the team in the long run. I don't know. Baseball is always a great analogy. So is poker. So is anything that gives you the opportunity to actually assess the outcome of probabilities and taking risk. You can do it in baseball. You can do it in poker. You can do it in craps. You can do it in everything. And I think one of the reasons why so many people inappropriately equate investing to gambling is because of the similarities between risk, measuring risk, assuming risk, experiencing the unfortunate side of risk, and money. Because it's tangible, you see the impact on your actual money, which is why obviously the casinos don't let you use cash, you use chips, so it doesn't feel as real. But that's why so many analogies are drawn between gambling and investing when they're not perfect. But what they're really drawing the analogy to is that experience of taking and realizing successful risk-taking and unsuccessful risk-taking. And unfortunately, in the casinos, it's never in your favor. And probably the best way to make money in the casino is to get the hell out of there as fast as you can. But there's the entertainment side of it. And I think people also inappropriately equate 
investing to entertaining. We're seeing a lot of that in the news right now with all of the Robin Hood investors and the GameStop and all of this. I mean, that is just so speculative. And a lot of people are doing it for entertainment purposes. I think serious investors aren't looking at their portfolios and they're investing in their wealth management plans as a source of entertainment for themselves. And if they do, they should be doing that with a very, very small bucket of money because like I always say, you never want to risk something you have and need for something you don't have but don't need. When it comes to investing and thinking about that in terms of gambling, I think we can all agree you can't control the market. But when it comes to investing, you can control your strategy, your allocation, how much risk you're taking on. And back to what Dean was saying earlier about improving decision-making, these are the types of decisions that you can improve the quality of. These are the types of things that you can control and you can make smarter decisions about. Totally agree. Let me just change gears just a little bit because there was one comment that Annie Duke kind of made and it kind of resonated me within the book. She had this one quote and it has to do with conflating confidence with certainty. And it kind of hit me because investors, myself included, I know you guys as well, we hear certain people that have such confidence, whether they're talking about an individual investment or whether we should be, or now is the time to be rotating out of growth and moving into value positions. And they say it with such confidence, like, oh, they cannot be wrong on this. And we need to, as people making decisions, investors, or any decision-making process, we need to always remember, and we've talked about this throughout this podcast, the element of downside. There is always that element of downside in any decision. And even though people talk with confidence, you need to remember that there is that element of downside. For example, when we actually work with clients, we talk about our probabilities of success, Jessica, all the time with clients. And someone may have a 90 plus probability of success. That's really good, but it's not 100%. And we always couch that comment of 90%. And we always talk about potential downside. Again, it's relatively small, but it does exist. And that's why over a long period of time in general, and for significant decisions, that's why we are always kind of revisiting those decisions and revisiting that scenario and revisiting that plan. Because as that new information comes to light, we're adding it to our analysis and either kind of readjusting and, and moving forward. So it's just very, very important to always recognize, even when someone sounds very confident, you need to think about what is the downside. They may not be explaining that to you fully. This is great, Dean. Before we wrap up, is there any last thoughts that you wanted to share from the book? I think it's a great book, and I think it's a great book for everybody. We all have decisions to make in our life. They do not have to be financial, by the way. They can be any decision. This book has helped me a lot. Jessica, you said before in the middle of the podcast, I do this with my wife a lot. She'll say something, and I'll say, well, do you want to make a bet on that? And of course, she laughs because she knows exactly where I'm coming from. But it does get you to think about your decisions. If you kind of attach a little bit of value, monetary value to a decision, it, it allows you to kind of focus in, am I considering all the factors in my decision? But by making better decisions, I do feel that you're going to lower your stress level. Everyone could use that in their life. I think in the end, you're going to have more confidence 
and you're going to make better decisions. I thought it was a great book. It's actually a very fun book to read. It's not like reading a statistical book. It's filled with stories. So it's a fun read, an easy read. It could be a beach book for sure, but you'll come out of it with something I think that you can use almost immediately. Yeah, I agree. It's one of my favorite books and I love the way she frames the real life stories and keeps imprinting on the importance of making good decisions. And she's always framing them in the context of odds, which is what you talk about. But odds are just another way of talking about what is the likelihood of being right. Those are odds. And so in poker, the odds are always changing. And if you've watched it on TV, you see the little percentages change of what the winning hand is because the camera can see everybody's cards. And Dean, you were talking before about how removing the stress and I'll call it the hassle and the aggravation, the anxiety, we can use that word too. But since we're talking about odds, I will just chime in here at the end with some statistics and odds that I think are really important for investors to be aware of as they are talking about their wealth plan with their advisors, or maybe there's some do-it-yourselfers out there. But the historical odds of making money in the markets, let's just say S&P 500 ads, it's all about the same. The statistical odds of making money is about 50-50 over a one-day period, which is essentially the same thing as walking into a casino. But over one-year periods, it increases from 50% to 68%. And then over 10-year periods, the odds of making money over 10-year periods is 88%. And so far, I have not seen any 20-year period of time in the stock markets where there has been a losing start to finish 20-year period. I have not seen one yet. I get so scared saying 100%, but it's 100% making money over a 20-year period. So far, looking back over history, I'm not Are you knocking on wood? No, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I'm just saying, so like if the whole goal of winning in poker is to be constantly assessing the odds of success and your odds of success are predicated on your ability to have chips in the game. You are trying to survive in the game. You never want to risk all of your chips on a low probability event. People go all in all the time when they know they have a very high probability of winning, but you've got to understand that as the odds increase in your favor over time, that is what should be highlighting the importance of just staying in the game with investing. Whereas poker changes hands, changes cards, the investor, somebody with a good, solid wealth management plan, and we do this for clients all the time, anything that keeps you in the game has a quantifiable advantage. It's just the way odds work in the investing world because they're so skewed towards positive returns as long as you have time, patience, and discipline. What a great way to end. So thank you so much, Dean. Dave, by the way, I would take those odds. 88% over 10 years, 100% over 20. I'll take them. <laughs> Making money could be 1%, but I'm just right. Anyway. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, Dean, thanks for talking about that book. I agree with you. It's one of my favorite books. I have it tabbed out and underlined, and it is the spine is broken. It is well-worn, and I consult it often just for some thoughts. Me so. as well. Hey, guys, I really enjoyed speaking with each one of you. Hopefully someday you'll have me back. I would love to be back. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll make it a series, Dean's Books. <laughs> great. great guys. Well, Dean, thanks. I know Jessica appreciates it too. Yeah, of course. Well, it was great to have Dean on the podcast. I look forward to having him again, Jessica. 
we've had Aaron on now and Dean, I'm excited about continuing to interview people and we'll get through a couple more monument people, but we're also going to have some other guests on too in the future. So I'm looking forward to it. I know you are too. Absolutely. So thanks everyone for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Great. Thank you all. Enjoyed being here.